We'll be turning to the book of Revelation, chapter number 11, verse 15. And this will be our launching pad verse today to talk about Are You Kingdom Bound? Now, listen carefully. Congregation, whatever your troubles are today, whatever your concerns are, whatever you're anxious about, whatever is anxiety uh, producing in your life, keep in mind that we are all kingdom-bound people. No matter what our problem is today, no matter what the problem will be tomorrow, do not lose sight of the kingdom. That's where we're headed. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, I have given you the... Fill it in. I have, Fear not, little flock, I have given you the... The kingdom. The kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. How many times does the word kingdom appear in the Bible? It's everywhere. Now we sang the opening hymn today was hymn number 228. And I just want to read one little phrase out of that beautiful hymn this morning that we all enjoyed singing. It was a very beautiful thought, and it says, I'm in hymn number 228, Rejoice the King, the Lord is King. Verse 3 says, His kingdom cannot fail. Now what do you think of that? The world we live in, the nation we live in, there is signs of decadence, Signs of decay, signs of trouble, trial, tribulation, and sorrow. But all those are the mere birth pains of a kingdom that will be born into history. And the truth is, we are moving incontrovertibly toward the emergence of God's kingdom in this earth. God's kingdom is the, only, is the only ultimate victory that this earth will be happy to receive. Politics and nothing else you can think of is going to matter. The king and his kingdom is sure. And one day we're going to hear the words of Revelation 11 verse 15 which says, And the seventh angel sounded, if you know that verse, say it with me. The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's a good verse. Revelation eleven fifteen yet to be 
yet to be sounded. One of the most beautiful verses found in the Bible, in fact, all the most, some of the most beautiful, eloquent verses found in the Bible are devoted to try and keep us kingdom-oriented. Kingdom-oriented. That is the goal, to remain kingdom-oriented. Don't let your career, don't let money, don't let anything in this life and world take your eyes away from the king and his kingdom. That's the ultimate goal. Isaiah the prophet gave us two of the most beautiful verses to be found. I know you know this, so say it with me. For unto us a child is born. Help me. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, and forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It's not dependent upon anybody. God says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So that kingdom is sure. When you go home today and surround the table, remember all your children, mother and dad, and everyone around that table is a kingdom-bound Soldier of Christ. Now on the journey that we're on, we may share variations of, of belief about this and that. Now, for example, somebody might say, well, I'm a local flood believer. The, the, the flood of Noah only covered a specified area of, of the earth. It was only in the, it confined to the Tarim Basin. And everybody outside the Tarim Basin was on dry ground. That's, you know, that, that may be important, but it should never obscure your vision of the kingdom. Now, I believe with pretty much, I'm convinced that the flood was global. Never participated in a debate on it, but I'd love to. We would de debate. We could go either way. We could say, resolve that the flood of Noah was a regional flood. Don't sweat the small stuff. Or we could say, resolve that the flood of Noah was a global event. You better think about if the earth was baptized with water, it might just be baptized with fire. So that'd be a good debate topic. But the truth is, folks, we're kingdom bound. So I'm not, I've got good, lovely friends that believe in a local flood. And, and I'm not going to, I don't argue with them about it. 
We've just agreed to disagree. But we are all kingdom bound. We're kingdom bound. Now there are some things, some points of truth that are, shall we say, not up for question. Some issues are so vital to our salvation, they cannot be quibbled about. One of those is how we view Jesus Christ. Jesus is the incarnate God that came down from heaven to save us. Jesus was not a created being. Jesus is not in the angel family. He is divine. We're locked, we're locked on that. This, this is an undisputable uh, point of truth. We, we'll, this is a hill to die on. Who is Jesus? A hill to die on. Resolved that Jesus Christ is God. Very God and very man. Inseparably united in two natures, God and man. Neither commingled nor confused. And Jesus had to be a man because by man came death, by man came the sacrifice at Calvary. The body of Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully, completely divine. So that's an important point. But the truth is, church, we are kingdom-bound people. And Isaiah was not the only one that talked about the wonderful kingdom. In, in Jeremiah chapter 23, 5 and 6, say this with me if you know it. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, the day comes, saith the Lord God, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice on the earth in his days. Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Think of how many writers of the Bible point us to the kingdom. We need to be fully, fully invested that we are kingdom believers. Fully invested. That no matter what, we are kingdom oriented. We're kingdom believers. We're not going to be caught up in some rapture more people will be ruptured than ever raptured. We're not going to be caught up in a rapture to just disappear. We're going to be on this earth because Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth. The earth was made for the kingdom. We started out with paradise. We're going to come back to paradise. We had paradise when Adam was created. We're going to have it under the new Adam, Jesus Christ, in his kingdom. So that's, we know that's true. The Bible tells us 
In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 44, I know you know this one. Say it with me. Daniel 2, 44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a, help me, kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom will not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 2.44. Daniel 7.18. The saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. That's kingdom. Now, if you were attending a typical gathering of Christians, they believe in the kingdom, but they're not sure just what it is. Because they believe that somehow we're all going to be saved and we're just all going to be in heaven someday. Do you know heaven is coming down to this earth? Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom, help me. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth, in earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is coming down to this earth. And that's what it means to be kingdom bound because you're going to be in the kingdom that will fill this earth. All of China, all of Russia, all of Europe, every continent in this earth will be under the king and his kingdom. The world, the earth, is made for the kingdom. So when we think of the word kingdom, we are kingdom-bound people. We should not let trivia, nuance trivia, distort our vision. So the very fact, the mere fact, that we might think a little differently on some points does not distract the idea that we are a kingdom-bound body of people. We're kingdom-bound. So I'd like for you to think about this now. When the angel Gabriel visited the Virgin Mary, as recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary... A young girl, how old was she? We don't know. The best guess estimate is she was between the age of 16 and 20. <clears throat> and the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou shalt conceive in thy womb, help me, and shall bring forth a son, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. How many of you know today that typically Christians are not sure who the house of Jacob is? Will it... Is the house of Jacob, these renegade people over in the state of Israeli, Israeli, who claim to be Abraham's seed, 
Who are the children of Jacob? They are the people that Jesus said, I'm going to come to rule over. It is important. There's an indispensable truth that you cannot compromise. On your way to the kingdom, there are indispensable areas of Bible truth that cannot be compromised, cannot be at issue. So we're, we're not going to debate who the, ki- the children of the kingdom are. The kingdom of God will not be a biological zoo. It will not be a biological zoo made up of biological people of many stripes and colors and types. When God created heavens and earth, the earth, he created distinct, separate, unique kinds of people. God made a beautiful variety of flowers when he built the earth, and he adorned it with beautiful flowers of many varieties. When God planted trees in the earth, there's a lot of variety. When God put fish in the ocean to swim, there's a lot of different kinds of fish. When God created people, he created different kinds of people, each for a purpose, each uniquely fulfilling the will of God. And God looked at everything that he had created, and behold, it was good. Good. Is the word preceded by anything? Very good. So from God's perspective, it was good. So we're not, we're not here to condemn any people that God created. The problem, church, lies in the fact that when God created the heavens and the earth, he allotted to each race a different spot of, of, of place. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of, say it with me, many generations. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. When he separated the sons of Adam. Now we're only talking about Adam kind now. We're not talking about all the other kinds of people. All the other kinds, when the Most High divided to the nations their part of the earth, he separated the sons of Adam according to the number, according to the number of the children of, say that word, Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Now wait a minute. The Lord's portion is his people. He created all the the different peoples, but he claimed one people for his own. Now, do we argue with the creator? Did he make a wise choice when he said, 
Israel was his people. Was God free to do that? Of course he was. Psalm 115 verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. That's a good verse. God does whatever he pleases. He chose one people before the foundation of the earth. Did it mean that he suddenly disliked all the rest of the people he created? No. It just simply means that God claimed one part of the creation for his own. And he wrote a book to those people called the Bible. The Bible. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God created he him, male and female created he them and called their name Adam. Nowhere does the Bible say that God wrote the Bible to all the people of the earth. It never says that. Preachers say it, but God does not. The Bible doesn't say it. Only people and preachers believe that. So the kingdom is the ultimate goal that we're reaching for. And all of our efforts to build godly families, to build Christian marriages, to raise God-fearing, Bible-believing children, is to the end that they may be kingdom-bound people. Kingdom-bound people. That's the goal. Everyone to be numbered in the kingdom of God. That is our goal. So now the question might arise, how do we qualify for that kingdom? How do we qualify for the kingdom? Do we... Is there something we need to know about qualifying for the kingdom? There is. So let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. A very wise and wealthy man named Nicodemus came to Jesus one night. He came to Jesus at night. He was a member of the great Sanhedrin, did not want to necessarily advertised that he was going to talk to Jesus because Jesus was the most controversial man living in Jerusalem. Did you know that Jesus Christ has been the most controversial figure in all the annals of time and history? Do you know that the first 450 years of the Christian world People argued about who Jesus was. Now, I'm, I'm going on the basis of historical Christian history. For 450 years, the finest, the best, the minds of the finest people on earth worked through the question of who was Jesus. Was he a great prophet that appeared? Was he just another great teacher on the scene? Who was Jesus? And there was a lowly fisherman 
that the Holy Spirit chose to reveal who Jesus was. What was his name? The, the, the fisherman. Who was the fisherman that told the world who Jesus was? The apostle Peter. And even after Peter revealed it, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus was the anointed Messiah prophesied to come to save his people. And Jesus told Peter that flesh and blood did not reveal that to him. But my Father which is in heaven hath revealed this unto you. Jesus was God come in human form. Jesus himself said in John 8, 58, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, say it, I am. Jesus announced that he was the voice that spoke in the burning bush. Jesus announced that he was the voice that shook Mount Sinai on the day of Pentecost. It, God incarnate, God incarnate, God came in the person of Jesus. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it's dark, it's night. And Nicodemus is privy to the idea that Jesus is the miracle man that's arrived. Jesus is going about raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, unstopping the ears of the deaf. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's profoundly, profoundly eliciting, eliciting truth. And he's garnering people's attention. So Nicodemus is very, very concerned about who Jesus is. And Jesus turns to Nicodemus and says, I know that you know these words, so say these words with me. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, an oath and firstborn from above, he cannot, cannot see the kingdom of God. In our natural state, people, we cannot see the king of the kingdom. We cannot see the kingdom. Except we be born from above. Now we're going to learn in a moment from scripture what that means to be born again. When the Bible says you must be born again, what does it mean? The Bible answers that question. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man, that's universal, male and female, except one be born again, except one be born of the water and of the Spirit, water and Spirit, they cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So we cannot see the kingdom, 
we cannot enter into the kingdom short of becoming a new creation. Why is that? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood. You and I are all flesh and blood here today. The way that we prepare for entry into the kingdom is to be spiritually born again at the day of our resurrection from the dead or the translation from this body to a translated condition, we will no longer be flesh and blood. We will be born body and soul and spirit into a new creation. But now you and I are being made a new creation in the spirit and in the soul essence of who we are. Our body will eventually get there. It's called redemption of the body. So then Jesus began to explain to Nicodemus and he said, in that monumental treatise in John's Gospel chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again, anothen, that's a Greek word from above, firstborn from above. The wind bloweth where it listeth. The wind blows where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that transforms us into a new creation. By and virtue of the blood of Jesus. Now, we're all Israelites here. We're familiar with the Old Testament. We've read the New Testament. And so let's, let's look at something that Jesus does to Nicodemus in chapter number 3 of the Gospel of John. Nicodemus is a very highly educated man, member of the great Sanhedrin. Now Jesus has chided him about being a leader in Israel and not knowing basic Bible truth. So he comes along in John's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And he begins to talk to Nicodemus about an Old Testament condition. The Israelites are in the desert. After the Exodus, out of Egypt, they're in the desert. The Israelites are in that Sinai desert condition. And one day, it so happened that because of their murmuring and complaining, that God turned loose a whole bunch of poisonous vipers. You know the story. God turns loose the poison vipers. What do they do? They bite the people. 
what happens? People start dying. Now, suddenly they don't have time to murmur because they're, they're being bitten by poisonous snakes and they're dying. So a contingent of people go to Moses and says, Call off the snakes! Call off the snakes before we all die. And do you know that God tells Moses to do something that doesn't sound too logical to us. But what does God tell Moses to do in Exodus? Must be around chapter 21. What does God tell Moses to do? Make a brass serpent. Mold a brass serpent. Put it on a pole. Now I know this is not logical. It doesn't sound too rational, does it? Make, form a brass serpent. Put it on a pole. And whoever goes and looks at the brass serpent. What is the promise? You'll be healed. You will not die. You will be saved by looking at the brass serpent. What bit the woman in the Garden of Eden? Eve was a snake-bitten woman. Who bit her? The serpent. Did the serpent strike Adam? If he didn't, how did Adam fall? The woman introduced her husband to the serpent. Except it wasn't crawling on the ground, was it? Back to the story of the, the brass serpent. Now, church, part of growing in our spiritual understanding is to have an Old Testament foundation because that's how the New Testament is going to unravel. It's built, the New Testament is only 15% of the Bible. It's resting on the 85% called the Old Testament. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, even as, the, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus lifted up on a cross, that whosoever believeth on him, whosoever of God's elect that choose to believe on him, whosoever believeth on him, will have eternal life and enjoy salvation and the conquering of death. Whosoever looketh upon Jesus, he is the source of everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, John chapter 3, but that the world 
that is the place for the kingdom, will be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ is not condemned, but has demonstrated that he's moved into a condition of everlasting life. For this is condemnation, that judgment, according to the Gospel of John, has come for those who have not believed in Jesus Christ. So it's very important that we know that entry into the kingdom is only by way of, of Jesus Christ. Another way that John taught the entrance into the kingdom is in the 14th chapter of the book of John. You're familiar with those words, I know. Say those with me. In, Let not your heart be troubled. I'm in John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, Jesus said. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Thomas said unto Jesus, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said unto him, uh, say this with me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the way. Jesus announced again who he was. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus went on to say, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Whoa, wait a minute. One of the followers of Jesus, an apostle named Philip, said, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Philip did not know what Jesus meant when he said, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. So how many Israelites do you know that do not know Jesus? Pretty good question, church. Because I've traveled in a lot of circles in my lifetime where people only knew the name of an Old Testament tetragrammaton that they refer to as Yahweh or Jehovah. And there's not a thing in the world wrong with that. 
because the Tetragrammaton of the Old Testament is a sacred, sacred pronunciation of the one true and living God. But I will testify to the whole congregation today that we have moved out of the Old Testament realm and now we're New Covenant people. And as New Covenant people, we have to understand that the Old Testament tetragrammaton has now revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus Christ does not take the back seat of the bus. He's on the front seat, theologically speaking. Very important. In John's Gospel, Philip saith unto Jesus, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus had just told him, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Philip says, Jesus, would you show us the Father? Philip was a slow learner. What did Jesus tell Philip in John's Gospel, chapter 14? Have you been so long time with me, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? You haven't known me, Philip. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Now, without undue straining of the intellect, church, if Philip the Apostle did not understand the nature of the being of God, is it any wonder that we Israelites today sometimes struggle in understanding the being of the creator of heaven and earth? I think not. Do you know to, to understand God is the ultimate test of the human mind? And I don't even, pre I don't want to even pretend to understand the being of God. I know that the most brilliant mind, now i got to be very careful here. I may not announce the name here, but one of the most brilliant minds of Christianity called the theologian of the West, the most important theologian, Bible student, Bible teacher, Bible writer, Bible scholar, that ever lived after the age of the apostles. Notice I'm being very cautious here. After all the apostles are dead, after all the children of the apostles, the students of the apostles, that's Polycarp, among many others. After that generation is dead, and we move forward in time, there is a young man that's born to a family whose mother's name is Monica. How many know who I'm talking about? Who had a mother named Monica? A mother who prayed for her child 
tirelessly. God, bring my son and use him for your glory and kingdom. And the more she prayed, the more her son rebelled. I haven't told you his name yet. And he became a very famous teacher of rhetoric in the Roman world. When the Vandals and the Gothic relatives of yours were knocking at the door of the Roman world, and those fair-skinned, blonde Israelites were taking over Rome. This man of which I speak, whose name was Monica, lived in a little town in North Africa. And by that time, he's fully man. He's a teacher of rhetoric, which was a very important part of the learning of that period in time. You had to be able to articulate what you believe. It was one thing to ingest information into your mind, a whole other thing to articulate that information that you put in your mind. So they had to, they had to be drilled. They went through all kinds of classes on argumentation and how to articulate and build your arguments. This man of whom I speak was a master at that. And so, as the story goes, in the pursuit of checking out who the best masters of rhetoric were, this man, because he taught rhetoric, went to visit inside of a church building one day because he disdained going into a church building. But he went there because the, the man with the greatest reputation at that moment in time was a preacher named Ambrose. A-M-B-R-O-S. How many have heard of Ambrose? Was a powerful preacher. He was the John Chrysostom of his day. He was the he was the Martin Luther of his day, I guess. And Augustine wandered into that building that day, not to learn anything from Ambrose, but simply to take notes on how his delivery and articulation was. He became so enamored, not with the rhetoric of Ambrose, but with his sheer truth of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms lives and causes people to turn around and go the other way in a positive direction toward the kingdom. Augustine left there that day with a great burden. He had heard words that laid on his heart a burden that he had never felt before in his life. 
It was a consciousness of what a sinner he was and how desperately he needed Christ to fill the emptiness and the void and the meaninglessness of his life. And Augustine was so convicted of his sin that he spent the remainder of his life in a state of repentance, repenting from the wild oats he had sowed as a youth. He could never quite forgive himself for his youthful, sinful days. But he became the single greatest theologian for the next thousand years in Christianity. I didn't say that every word that Augustine wrote would be credible, but no one has ever achieved the theological heights of the mind of Augustine. And every Reformation father that you can name, from Martin Luther to John Knox to Thomas Cramner to John Calvin to, you name every Protestant Reformation, and they're standing on the theological shoulders of Augustine. God used that man in powerful ways. So, here's the thing, church. We're raising children. You don't know what God plans for your children. But your job is to teach them to be teachers of godly children. Monica never stopped praying for her son. And when, when her son, Augustine, was baptized, it was Monica's day of joy and celebration. She had prayed all of her life for this son to come out of his sinful state. And he did, by the grace of God. So, dear church today, I'd like to encourage us all to know that we're kingdom-bound people. We're kingdom-bound. We should not let anything obliterate our vision of the kingdom. Don't let people don't let people influence you in a way that they are going to rob you of your kingdom inheritance. Every family is a little king, miniature kingdom. Every father, priest of his house, is the, is the miniature kingdom of God. So that's what we want to be, is a kingdom-bound, kingdom-oriented people on our way to the kingdom. In closing today, what is my prayer? My prayer is that we can be better than Philip. That we can be better than Thomas in John's Gospel, chapter 14. Thomas is the one that says, Lord, how can we know the way? And 
How can we know whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is not in competition with anyone. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. All the gods of the past are in the grave. Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. Revelation 1.18 Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of he death, hell, and the grave. Revelation chapter 1 verse 18. So today, beloved, remember what Jesus said. He that takes hold of the plow handles and look back, looks back. What did Jesus say? Take hold of the plow handles, look back, is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. So we're kingdom bound. Don't let daily life bog you down. Keep your vision of the kingdom. There's a little chorus and Julie will play that chorus for us. And don't, do not turn the recorder off. Have your eyes caught the vision? Has your heart felt the thrill? To the call of the master, do you answer? I will. For the conflict of the ages, taught by prophets and by sages, is upon us in its fury, in its fury is upon us, is upon us today. So I'm going to ask Rachel. I'm going to ask Rachel and uh, Dana and Katie and Abby and uh, Kylie, if they'll come up and lead us in this chorus. Now, leave the microphone on and we'll have them camp out around the microphone. And uh, I will... I will ask the congregation to stand now where we still are on, we're still under the camera, so let's all stand. Have your eyes caught to vision. Say it with me. Just, just a minute, Julie. Have your eyes caught the vision? Has your heart felt the thrill? To the call of the master, do you answer, I will? For the conflict of the ages and all of its fury, taught by prophets and by sages, in all of its fury is upon us, is upon us today. Here we go. Here we go, everybody.
Marvelous Girls Marvelous. Thank you.